0: Welcome everyone to Howling Coyote podcast and tonight we're privileged to have Patrick McFarlane who is a colleague of mine for the past seven years and with whom we've hatched multiple plots to take over the world none of which have worked but at least (laughs) we're trying and uh, so Patrick is a licensed clinical social worker, a family nurse practitioner, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and probably many other things. And he's also a PhD candidate at Memorial University in Newfoundland. And so tonight, we're going to talk about decolonizing medicine, and in particular, Patrick's process of decolonizing medicine. So take it away, Patrick.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Lewis. Um, I mean, I just really want to start by saying that, um, you know, we, um, well, we had a conversation a couple of days ago that I think um, sort of illustrates all of this for me. Um, I grew up in Sanilac County, Michigan, in a city called Sandusky, Michigan uh in a state that is called michigan which were all Potawatomi words which i didn't even realize uh that the Potawatomi people still existed um probably until my senior year of high school and then it was in an anthropology class at the university of michigan in my first year when i was sort of dumbfounded to learn that indigenous native people still exist in the americas so I, um, I mean, I guess that was sort of the start of my realization that, um, you know, I, I was not only on the land of these people, but um, in my estimation, um, you know, I owed them something to learn about, uh, you know, their culture. And I came to understand, you know, the importance of decolonization in terms of reparation for the health of, um, you know, indigenous people. Um, and you know that's how all of that started a long time ago. And then um, more recently, um, you know, Lewis and I have both been teaching in graduate medical education. Um, me for the last uh, eleven years, and um, I came to understand uh, medicine and graduate medical education in particular is being highly problematic, um, even really abusive um, to practitioners, but then also to patients. Um, I worked in a federally qualified health center, which is part of this country's solution for people who are uninsured or underinsured or who lack resources. Um, And I'll never forget seeing on the wall at a federally qualified health center, um, a sign that said, if you have more than one problem, you'll have to come back another time because we only have time in this moment to talk about one problem, one medical problem that you have. And I thought if this isn't medicine becoming a factory, I, I don't know what is. And it's so far away from the notion of health or healing that it really bothered me. And then, um, you know, uh, Louis, Dr. Mella Madrona, my colleague and one of the attendings in our, in our program, um, you know, came and started talking about all sorts of notions of situation, situating people in their narrative and trying to understand somebody's narrative from their geography and then started talking about this concept of, or this construct of two-eyed seeing, um, which uh, you know um, comes from um, the elder marshals, uh, Mi'kmaq elders, who talk about this notion of holding in one's mind and one's eye an indigenous notion or way of seeing the world and also Western ways of seeing the world and Western medicine ways of seeing the world. And it made me start to sort of think about um, if, you, if one was going to, and a lot of people have then, we'll ta- I'll reference some of those people in a minute, but um, a lot of people have started to write books about decolonization, decolonizing trauma, decolonizing um, uh, you know, healthcare, um, decolonizing methodologies and science. And I started to think uh, about um, what would it look like if we actually decolonize medicine? And that is what this presentation is about. So with that, I will share the screen and then um, uh, we'll sort of go from there.: So um, decolonizing and decolonizing medicine specifically, to me relates to the importance of addressing of using art in medicine to help us address fundamentally violence. because I think that fundamentally violence, Um, which is represented by colonization, certainly, um, is one of the um, foundational pieces
2: um, in terms of health and health care.
1: And without addressing violence, I think that we uh, miss, uh, you know, key aspects of things that make people sick. And without addressing them, you know, a lot of people, physicians for social responsibility, for example, says that if we don't ask people about their experiences of violence and ally with them about addressing those experiences of violence, then we ally first with power and we don't help people uh, you know, work toward health. So um, I love this uh, splash uh, picture on this first slide. It's by Howard Dina Pindell, uh, who in 1988 outlined her body and um, surrounded with words uh, on this canvas, um, all sorts of questions um, that put the her body in the context of violence. And you see things like iron fist and banned funerals and the diamond triangle, how dare you question things, assassinations, you know, all of the elements certainly of colonization and, um, and, and slavery.
2: Uh, so. Here we go.
1: So first I want to also say, um, I grew up in the land of the Potawatomi, and um, where Dr. Melt Madrona and I currently are, are on the unceded lands of the Wabanaki Confederacy, which include the Maliseet, Mi'kmaq, Passamaquoddy, and Penobscot nations. Um, Wabanaki uh, Confeder- Confederacy refers The people of the dawn, the people in the eastern, northeastern uh, part of the United States um, was currently called the United States, um, where theoretically uh, we're among the first people um, to see the light. And it's certainly the Wabanaki people were the first people to see the light for a millennia before we got here. And that fundamentally uh, it's not just a land acknowledgement, we also believe that the return of the lands and reparation are a central goal for we colonizers to help take responsibility for decolonization. We'll talk a little bit about that later as it relates to medicine, but we also acknowledge that part of the historic wealth um, of a lot of Maine coastal communities actually came from ship builders and captains that were involved in the slave trade. Um, and I might ask you to think about what other acknowledgements we might make um, you know about who we are and where we're from and how, who we might center with us in this effort. Um, and the goals of this presentation are just a few. You know to take responsibility first as colonized and colonizer, um, to center decolonization as a philosophy and approach to science and medicine, to explore what it means to decolonize medicine in some way, and to think very broadly about the impact of colonization, read violence on everything and all of us and to think about colonization on indigenous populations specifically around the world. Because since we um, have benefited from extractive capitalism for so many years, I think we owe them something because of all of that. And certainly, we will talk about many disturbing things. So this is the trigger warning. Talk about genocide, certainly, but you know, t- techniques of colonization, genocide, slavery, uh,
2: and part of the problems of medicine. Um,
1: and you know, in preparing all of this, um, I mean, it was uh, W.E.B. Du Bois who said, sorry, um, between me and the other world, um, there is ever an unasked question. How does it feel to be a problem? And he was asking us, of course, about being a uh, black American um, in 1897. Um, but uh, this quote was in Michelle Alexander's book, um, and uh, that's been republished a few times now, um, The New Jim Crow, where she says white people are generally allowed to have problems and have been historically granted the power to find and respond to them. But the people of color in this land of the free forged through slavery and genocide are regularly viewed and treated as the problem. And so uh, decolonization
2: fundamentally means um, attacking that uh, construct.
1: Um, people know this history, I'm sure, but, um, I mean, let's not forget that it's the 1830 Indian Removal Act and then the 1850 to 1857, uh, it's considered the reservation era, um, uh, of the United States, where the government decided that they would outlaw um, places and traditions and images of, uh, indigenous populations and, um, and so uh, one of the things that I wanna counter with that are um, uh, you know, BIPOC artists who are sort of responding to this. And you can't start with this appropriately without thinking um, all the way back to um, uh, the forcible removal of indigenous people from their native lands. Um, and this just, when I found this quote, it just sort of broke my, um, broke my heart, but it also illustrated, um, this is uh, a Sisi Sapa, from 1860 from Sioux culture, and you start to see, um, I mean, it didn't used to be so much, I am told, by elders that images were on objects, um, that sacred images or that spiritual images were so much on objects sometimes, but then they started to migrate to, this is an example of a square drum that illustrates the Thunderbird. And, um, you know, people would talk about these stories and that there were place relationships to these stories, but then when you remove from that place, Um, there was this fear that people might lose this connection to place and story. And so some of these images were, you know, begun to put on objects that they could take and sort of the federal overseers who were moving um, natives, um, you know, I I guess we're used to seeing a dormant on, you know, some of their own sort of practical things and they didn't take such umbrage with the notion that there was an image uh, on on this drum, for example. But Thunderbird um, is a noble, Uh, a being that would protect humans from dangerous shapeshifters um, or the monsters. And I just think that it's incredibly fitting and moving to see this. And if you pair this with um, Charlie Hicks um, Salagis, who was Cherokee on the Trail of Tears in 1838, who said, we are now about to take our leave and kind farewell to our native land, the country of the great spirit, uh, that the great spirit gave our people, and it is with sorrow that we are forced by the white man to quit the scenes of our childhood. Um, this is a round shield um, from about the same time in the 1860s, uh, so in this time of removal. It's, a, it's from Lakota culture. And actually, um, it's sort of wild. Uh, I mean, my partner and I visited several museums and all of them, um, had exhibits that I would consider to be relatively uh, um, uh, attempts at looking at um, decolonizing. Um, and, but this shield uh, from Lakota culture is again um, from uh, this guy, Joseph No Two Horns, who apparently was a, um, an artist who was at Standing Rock um, and he and was a warrior who actually fought in the Battle of the Little Bighorn. But um, this uh, no two horns um, image uh, apparently also was, um, you know, a protective force um, against evildoers and, and uh, no good doers. Um, and I mean... You know, what do you want if you're a people that are oppressed? Um, I would hope that you would want some art to sort of represent something symbolic of um, something powerful and good and magical. Um, this one, uh, I love this piece. This is a more contemporary artist from 1967. This is George Morrison, um, but it depicts a New England landscape. Um, my friend Sean is here. I want him to be able to see these images too. So feel free to look at. Um, but he's an Ojibwe Anishinaabe artist. And it depicts all of these horizon lines um, between the underground and land and water and the sky. Um, And it's made of all the various woods that are represented um, the tree people who uh, live around the the Great Lakes. Um, And uh, it illustrates the notion that um, from Morrison's view, that one of the most important things about native people is a, and this came out, we'll talk about Renee uh, Linklater uh, later um, and also Linda Tuhi Smith, who wrote a book called Decolonizing Methodology. But one of my favorite parts about her book there is that it says, um, you know, the one thing that we really do have as a, a native people is our spirituality. And because it's something that basically the colonizer has never been able to understand. So they've never been able to really exploit or uh, uh, take from us and um, So here's this image of all of these uh, uh, horizons, if you will, and an origin um, made from the bodies of the tree people um, who have protected uh, the Ojibwe and Anishinaabe people around the Great Lakes for millennia. Then I just started to think about spirituality uh, um, of uh, indigenous uh, folk as they were, you know, at least, you know, you can argue about this, and there's a lot of controversy about how museums display these pieces, and and moreover, how they came uh, to own them. But, I mean, if you take in these Haida masks from the Pacific Northwest, I mean, they are just these beautiful images of, um, I mean, like, I want to know these people, I want to know their background, I want to know these spirit beings, I want to know what they're about. Um, are they, you know, they're good, are they Uh, you know bad are they tricksters who are they but like this is a spirituality that sort of um, you know appeals at least to me and of course the famous kachina dolls uh, you know the Hopi and Zuni cultures Um, and all of the kachina dolls as they were made and sculpted um, were considered to be messengers um, from the beyond and that they were to bring messages to you annually and um, I mean one of the things that I've learned from uh, my elder mentors is um, this notion that Um, I mean, it's much easier to be centered and healthy if you're connected to a much larger spirituality, and if you have these arsenal of beings to call upon and to be part of your life, um, you know, uh, it's a good position, um, perhaps, to have for health. And um, as we know, colonizers... um, uh, you know, moved us toward this idea of a monoculture where indigenous people, first of all, weren't even considered to be human beings. They were considered, um, you know, first for chattel slavery, um, and second as nuisances to be moved, uh, as we've already discussed by you know, the political, uh, the real legal political acts the United States took. But also just note that colonizers were shaped by ethnocentrism, and Christian monotheism, which espoused, you know, one truth, one time, one version of reality. Um, you know, and this is quite a contrast to what you see depicted in terms of the spiritual beings and um, you know, the art. And that, never forget that fundamentally, um, the, the colonial enterprise is based on dominance, extraction of resources, um, specifically to develop European commerce. Um, and, and with this commitment to obligate and propagate fundamentally Christian faith. Um, and so then you start to see things like this um, instead of having a uh, mass of spirituality or um, lots of different spirits to relate to, or lots of different conceptions of spirituality, we see this notion that there's this one God and this one way of being, and that this is how it should be. And um, you know, oddly, um, it's also very white and also very centered. Um, and this is actually a uh, um, an ethi- This is a, a triptych. Um, that uh, came from uh, Ethiopia, um, and one of the things uh, I was texting all of this to Mel Madrona as you was know, part of my dive into this rabbit hole. Um, I was actually reading, um, you know, they say if you're going to do something uh, uh, about history, that you should know something about history, and to do that, you have to go back to the original documents, and so. Luckily, we live in this era where you can, um, you know, find things uh, via the interweb, and so I found Christopher Columbus's um, uh, journals, and this was just stunning. Um, you know, so as you know, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Um, we we all know that, um, but this I didn't know this part from the journals. Uh, as soon as I arrived in the Indies, I took some of the natives by force. In order that I might learn, and they might give me information of whatever's in these parts, and then he describes his initial relationship that summer um, to the uh, to the native people um, in Hispanola, which is present day Haiti, the Dominican Republic. Um, He said, they brought us parrots and balls of cotton and spears and many other things. They willingly traded everything that they owned. They were well built with good bodies and handsome features. They do not bear arms. They do not know of them for I show them a sword and they took it by the edge and cut themselves out of ignorance. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them
2: do whatever we want. By January of that year, having spent some time in Hispanoa, learning how to exploit people. He writes, they are evil and they eat men.
1: They are savage cannibals with dog-like noses that drink the blood of the victims. It's from January 13th, 1493. This happened, mind you, Um, this was also documented in other journals, That after two natives had said no to an unfair trade, and fighting
2: with the colonizers over that trade. And um, this uh, is an
1: amazing depiction. This is um, by uh, an artist named Jacob Lawrence, uh, who's at, um, this is from an exhibit that's now at Colby College uh, in Maine. And it's um, the black man in the center of this is Francois-Dominique Toussaint Louverture. Le, Le I'm sure, Lewis is cringing at my French pronunciation of his name, and I apologize for all of, for any French speakers who might be listening. But um, for those of you who don't know, he, of course, is the Haitian general who stood up to Napoleon and led the resistance there, the the Jacobin resistance. and the ultimate defeat of Napoleon, who, in that defeat, you know, um, colonizers are pretty good at, okay, even if you win, we still want to negotiate and perhaps negotiate it unfairly, but he, Napoleon did agree to abolish slavery. And um, mind you, the United States took positions then against Haiti because the southern U.S. was very nervous that uh, American blacks might, er, and enslaved people um, you know, might follow suit. So uh, the United States was very nervous about this and still is to this day. I mean, part of the reason why Haiti has had many political problems is because we've ostracized them. Um, you know, they were sort of the first Cuba in many ways um, with less friends in the world. And, um, but I mean, it's kind of an amazing, I mean, it still remains a, a country to this day that's a democracy um, that came out of slavery because of um, a black leadership and, and revolt against uh, colonizers. Um, but this depicts a meeting um, after all of that happened of Toussaint, who, um, and this is a true story, was invited by um, white farmers who um, they were still deciding. Um, you know, Toussaint said, I want to live in a, a democratic society where we're able to share space. And so these farmers invited him over to give advice about farming, and they double crossed him. Uh, took him prisoner and moved him to a fort uh, near France um, where he died um, subsequently.
2: Um, And uh, this
1: came, um, this was also happening, uh, I mean, this series of paintings, but um, this is from Thomas Ball uh, from uh, an exhibit that's currently at Colby College. It's called This House is Mine Exhibit. And there are all these poems um, uh, uh, depicting the American Black experience, and in this, of course, you can see um, a, uh, a, a lynching. Um, and I loved this. Um, this was, a, I, I thought, a pretty well done exhibit. Um, you know, oftentimes you see this. There were all of these um, uh, smaller miniature uh, sculpture um, models that were made by Thomas Ball. Um, and uh, it's titled Emancipation. You know? I mean, everybody always thinks about Lincoln as the great emancipator, and um, for signing, uh, you know, during the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation. But here, next to that um, example, is a uh, letter to the editor that was printed by Frederick Douglass in 1876, that said, you know, after emancipation the entire i mean this is this is to use frederick Douglass's words the negro here though rising is still on his knees and nude what i want to see before i die is a monument representing the negro not couchant on his knees like a four-footed animal but erect on his feet like a man there is room in lincoln in lincoln park for another monument and i throw out this suggestion uh to the end
2: that it may be taken up and acted upon and
1: this is going on at the same exact time that probably most of you know about the uh, Lincoln also ordered the largest government uh, mass execution of the Sioux uh, in history, um, where there were like 240 uh, people who were slated to be killed that day, though Lincoln commuted most of them except for 38 men who were hanged um, uh, in that um, same era. I don't remember the date of this exactly, but, um, and the only reason why I know about the Dakota 38 is because there was a medicine ride that was done, um, that was uh, um, picked up by Smooth Feather Media and they um, documented the ride um, of uh, Sioux Elders um, in response to the hanging of the Dakota 38. And, I realized this just made me angry. And I forgot to write down the name of the artist. But um, I mean, policing in the United States, as most people now realize, um, was invented as a a method of controlling um, slavery. Um, There were night watch people all over the United States um, early in uh, colonial America to look for fires and fire watch and safety watch, those sorts of things. But policing grew out of the militia movement and the militia movement were white settlers who would um, dress up in local militia uniforms and then march through towns. You can see in this uh, painting, the, um, uh, the black population, um, you know, sort of being shown who's in charge and um, sort of, let me remove that surgically from that sentence.
2: Um, and uh, I love this.
1: Um, As we sort of move now toward more modern art, this is from Betty Saar in 1996 from Found Objects. And, um, you know, these, you know, the leader, uh, and it's titled The Leader. Um, But it's uh, a depiction of Aunt Jemima holding a gun, by the way, and a a flag or a uh, clock without um, arms uh, with an American flag in the middle. And she's wearing a sign that says, Oh, these cold white hands manipulating. They broke us like limbs from trees, carved Europe on our African masks and made us puppets. This is a uh, painting by Peter Williams, um, which is a portrait of Char- or Christopher Fisher, Fourth Reich skinhead, 1995 is the title. Fisher was convicted in 1993 of conspiring to bomb black church, a black church. And the peeling skin in this painting uh, reveals you know, this very uh, ugly that was um, underneath this fan and the words white supremacist um, you can see. And uh, you'll notice that there are many wide black eyes that wonder that represent um, from his estimation, the wonder of black people at the hate and ugly of this man. I love Tyreed Guyton. I mean, for those of you who don't know his work, um, he took over a neighborhood in Detroit that um, was failing and he has two blocks where he painted, you know, about three or four of the houses and then collected lots and lots and lots of found objects. And um, it's a very controversial, like some people just call it junk, Um, but it was his way to call attention to the, you know, the plight um, of, uh, of these blocks in Detroit. And he has many um, found object pieces like this. And this was something that was at the DIA, but this is called Caged Brain that he made in 1990. Um, I love Shirley Woodson. And um, she is one of my uh, favorite painters, is still alive, is this little tiny, like 80-something-year-old um, woman. And um, And you can look at this and just sort of see a bucolic beach scene, but um, Woodson writes quite a lot about and tells the story about the African diaspora um, and uh, and everybody's relationship to the Nile uh, as the uh, origin of humanity. And you can see in this picture, um, I mean, you know, it looks like somebody who just could be at the beach waving at a sailboat, and yet um, really this man's uplifted hands certainly represent hope. And here are these birds that are on this rock um, that, uh, you know, much like the earlier birds that we looked at um, from the Sioux, um, you know, represent hope, the ability to fly, the magical ability to get away, um, and to return. I love this artist, um, and you see a lot more of this um, from um, uh, black indigenous people of color artists. Uh, but. This is Kindy Wiley's famous 2007 painting. Um, I love this. It's, um, you can see in the bottom right corner, it's um, a take on the uh, Agoracult's 1812 officer of the Hussars, and it's titled Officer of the Hussars. in um, this great, uh, you know, modern day depiction of a black man in Timberlands holding a sword and riding this horse, um, you know, uh, ferociously. Um, you know, it just gives this idea about that there's, a, you know, this could be a time of hope. It's there's something emerging from all of this. Um, looking back, this is uh, to me, um, this is Titus Kapfer's 2007 painting. It's sort of an unfinished painting, um, titled "Portrait of Lillian Dandridge. And if you if you Google Lillian Dandridge, there's um, You know, lots of Lillian Dandridge's that are part of the um, uh, Dandridge diaspora, if you want. But Dandridge was actually Martha Washington's maiden name. It's her family name. And Lillian was a uh, slave woman uh, born um, in that family that took the Dandridge name. And uh, this sort of a depiction, like, you know, the fine art portraiture of the top Mimicking, um, you know, portraiture of the finer ladies, but like just clearly in this case, um, you know, the story is not uh, uh, fully told. Um, And then this is Kay Walking Stick, who in 1995, she's a Cherokee uh, painter, but um, me, you again start to see uh, depictions of. of stories, narrative, um, depiction of spiritual beings. And um, I don't know, like this painting just makes me happy and draws me in and I I wanna know more uh, of of the stories and the origin stories and those sorts of things. Um, And uh, this is another uh, K walking stick from 1995. And um, you know there's a depiction you know it's always interesting i think it's almost like a gestalt of like oh is this like some sort of religious marker or uh in her case this is um uh, a claim back to a landscape and a reference um she says to the four directions and then this guy uh this this is um monkman who is a cree and um a lot of uh, my Canadian uh, indigenous friends um, know of, of Monkman. But this just makes me happy. Um, this, he, he is uh, said not to just be attacking um, you know, uh, ideas about decolonization, but also decolonization specifically related to gender. And so here is this uh, uh, native person on the multiple color uh, canvas um, depicting, um, you know, sort of the LGBTQ, um, you know, colors. And he titles it the daddies. <laughs> so here's this man, um, you know, talking of the great founding white daddies, um, you know, from his perspective. And if this just isn't rich, I don't know what is. And this just is, of course, um, you know, you can't talk about decolonizing medicine without, referencing um, in my cohort, I was inspired to think about this also, Um, Jeff Moore, uh, who is um, uh, very involved with um, the Western uh, First Nations um, folk and working with um, the children, uh, the children's bodies that have been discovered at boarding schools throughout Canada and the United States now, and Monkman, painted this picture, it's called The Scream. And um,
2: yeah, I don't feel like I need to say a lot about this.
1: Um, And then if you wanna see, um, you know, some other BIPOC folks, it's an exciting time because, um, you know, African artists um, are uh, starting to um, uh, also respond to their views about being colonized. And um, this was a poem that was in a, uh, um, a film piece called Rainbow Country by Campbell Addy and Ronan Aidi. Um, and this comes from the poem that was in the film that said, playtime jokes still clothed my identity, wrapping me in institutional prejudices that choke us comfortable until we realize that we are all different.
2: And at the bottom there, if you click on that, it will pull up the
1: film, which is a film that um, uh, he did uh, that talks about um, the names that he was called as a uh, young, gay, uh, uh, black, African. So fundamentally, um, what is colonization? And uh, it's hegemony, a dominance of one group over another supported by legitimating norms and ideas, not that they're legitimate, but they're legitimating. And there's this idea about performativity that the dominant culture requires that the colonized act and conform to ideas about them. And Ian Hacking says that we construct people to fill the needs of the moment and that we always then invent new categories of people. Um, I talked to one of my ex-partners actually today, um, just this morning and and he was lamenting uh, he said, white people, white people always just, they feel like they can name everything, even my body. And because um, uh, he was talking about it and laughing about some of his own um, sort of more uh, ridiculous experiences having been hospitalized recently.
2: But um,
1: it, we're not, I mean, this isn't the first time that there's been colonization, by the way. I mean. Um, you know, the Safavid Empire, uh, 1501 to 1736, um, also reflect what was called then this, uh, this idea, anthropologists called it this utopian message, like this idea about if you do it our way, you know, it'll be all right. <laughs> and, um, you know, this was a huge uh, colonization over parts of Turkey, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the Toscous Mountains, um, and the Muslim rulers, who were then colonizers there, positioned themselves as quote divinely inspired mystics who could bring a reign of peace and justice. Um, and uh, and interestingly, you know, art was a significant part of. Um, uh, you know, they depicted themselves as um, buoyant and young and vibrant, and this notion that you know they are the way that things should be. Um, so I think, you know, as you think about colonization that we're talking about uh, in our era, um, it probably merits some good deep dives into colonization that ha- has happened historically um, around the world. So that's the, if that's colonizing. What is decolonizing, or also what is sometimes called anti-oppressive practices? And Thomas and Green from the Journal of First Peoples uh, Child and the Family Review um, said. Um, It's a complicated challenging or grappling with justice and oppression, an analysis of power and working across difference. And a critical examination of knowledge and assumptions, both our knowledge and assumptions and other people's. Um, And uh, fundamentally, um, I mean, that's one of the things that I've come to value most about always thinking about the lens of two eyed seeing um, is that how is it that I know what I think I know? Um, how is it that I know what I think is right? And what am I leaving out? Or what might I not know um, from other perspectives? Um, Gray Coates and Yellowbird and Hetherington in 2013 said, decolonizing is the physical and mental aspects of decolonization apply equally to the indigenous and the non-indigenous communities. Um, we'll get more into this, uh, I think, another time, but I mean, Lewis and I were gonna both talk about um, you know, our views of our own colonization and what it means to try to think about decolonizing ourselves individually and collectively. Um, and Crampton in 2015 said that you know, about decolonizing, best practices or evidence-based practices operate in the ideas of permanence. But to be indigenous requires a philosophy of impermanence. Um, one of the most adroit critiques, for example, of evidence-based medicine, although this is probably another semester long course is just this whole notion that, you know, if most evidence, um, you know, that we develop scientifically at least from a Western lens is around this concept of a mathematical mean, how many of us exist at a mean? And um, who does it serve to exist at that mean? Um, And there's a lot of people writing about and thinking about decolonizing. Um, Certainly, uh, Lewis has talked before, I know, about Megan Bang and her idea about epistemologic genocide, but um, one day we were working with the residents in the precepting room, when Lewis first introduced me to the idea, and I'll never forget him saying, you know, it was a story about a, a kid on a playground who believed that he could talk to plants, and the teacher or his peers saying to him, oh, you can't talk to plants plants don't talk and how just fundamentally undermining that is for a child who might have grown up believing that they could talk to plants or that they should talk to plants and that plants have wisdom and we certainly know now um you know based on the secret life of trees and a lot of other very interesting research that's happening now is that plants do have um you know rich lives and maybe we should be listening to them if we could only sort of get out of our own way sometimes but Eduardo Duran wrote a book about decolonizing trauma. Um, Renee Linklater has written about decolonizing trauma which by the way I didn't know about um, until uh, my friend Jeff Moore introduced me to the book, and it turns out that as I got the book this summer and opened it up. Who wrote the introduction to the book? Because he served on her doctoral committee, is our very own Lewis Melmadrona. <laughs> so he's in the forward to that book. Um, but certainly, uh, Lewis uh, Melmadrona and Barbara Mangi have written about, you know, narrative and its import in um, medical practice and counseling practice, and using story-based and narrative interventions in medicine that put people in their place and understands their geography. Albert Marshall, or the Marshalls um, both, uh, you know, have written about and talked about Two-Eyed Seeing. And, um, uh, oh, I can't believe I didn't write the I mean, this is the book that has taken my breath and kicked me in the guts right now, but it's called The Violent History of Benevolence, um, which looks at how social workers have, and many helping professions have been complicit, uh, uh, complicit with colonization. And, uh, you know, I referenced already um, one of the references earlier was um, Barbie Yellowbird, and we talked about Linda Tui Smith, who's a Maori who writes about decolonizing methodology for science. Um, and then there's many other uh, professional and scientific organizations right now that are thinking very specifically about practical things that they can do to support decolonization efforts in medicine and science. So, how do you decolonize you? <laughs> Um, I mean, for me, uh, and this isn't just me, um, you know, lots of people have written about this, but I mean, you have to realize that you are a colonizer, that you are colonized, um, and that that affects what are, it affects what we're able to see and conceptualize. Second, you have to think about that operate operationally. Um, how does that affect people? Um, and third, then do something about it. And I would suggest that you consider two-eyed seeing as a start. Um, and I, you know, people, this is, you know, one of the, you know, a very um, roundly used quote, but I mean, I always think about Audre Lord, who, you know, talk about um, an amazing uh, feminist writer, thinker, challenger, you know, always has suggested, and this is used a lot, but the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So I think that to dismantle our colonization, we have to look for tools from um, indigenous uh, others. Um, we have to look for, at those cultures. We have to um, uh, learn and we have to be led by them. Humble ourselves to be led by them. And what does it mean specifically to decolonize medicine? I don't know. We've got some ideas, and I suppose that that's what this is about. but um, you know first, if you just think about sort of wheres medicine going right now? I mean there's all sorts of efforts to use artificial intelligence, algorithmic medicine, evidence-based medicine. Um, and all of the different ways that race has been tied in. I think there was an article um, that I will eventually put in this. Uh, you know, when I give this lecture um, in our seminar in a couple of weeks. But um, I think that there's something like eighty uh, algorithms in medicine, or eighty um, lab values, eighty uh, like you know, calculating heart disease and those sorts of things that all use race as a construct. And we all know that race. Um, uh, you know, is not a, is not a thing. It's a social construct, um, which doesn't mean that there aren't social things that might impact. Um, I mean, but maybe it would be better to call it like stress, um, poverty, like, you know, lots of other things that we have done and then point at a race and say that that's a problem of that race when actually it's, uh, you know, a problem of the colonizer to that socially constructed race. Um, there's lots of things in medicine like that that Uh, you know, are important to consider as we go forward. Um, In fact, there's, um, you know, there was probably, at least I've seen a good dozen journal articles about, um, you know, sort of the inappropriate use of race or the um, uh, inappropriate use of um, evidence that misses some evidence, I think, because um, people haven't thought about um, decolonizing their methodology, frankly. Um, And... I would ask also, I mean, I say this a lot, that we have commodified the poor in medicine. We oftentimes make it widget-based medicine. Think about that sign in the FQHC that read, "You know, if you have more than one problem, you gotta come back more than one time because we'll make money from you, but um, uh, we won't think about you holistically. Does, Does the commodification of the poor, does the commodification of suffering, does our earning money from suffering, is that an extractive enterprise? Does it echo colonization? So here are ideas that I have about decolonizing medicine. And I know, right, this is probably ad nauseum. I don't mean to read all of these slides to you, but it's a podcast, so I'm going to read them to you. Um, so, and I would welcome anybody's input about this. This is a, um, what do you call this? A uh, plastic, um, organic bunch of ideas that, you know, needs refining and running through lots and lots of folk. But um, this is sort of what, uh, in conversation with many people, um, sort of has risen to the top about ideas about decolonizing medicine. First and foremost, you have to stand with the indigenous nations and and their land claims and rights, number one. Two, use two-eyed seeing approaches to knowledge, science, and ways of knowing. Three, make room for difference, exception, and alternative ways of knowing. One of my favorite things about Lewis is that he always says, I'm not so interested in the people in the middle, I'm interested in the people at the end, the, the, you know, the weirdos, the ones at the outside, the outliers. Um, And I think that we have to be interested in that um, to see all of uh, who we are. Broadening interest and criticizing the mean um, and our evidence base that exists at that mean. We have to center people and community and place and stories as decolonizing methods in our work. We have to make room for art and humanities using phenomenology in science and medicine. And phenomenology uh, means fundamentally getting at the person's experience in the world. We have to critique and trouble colonial racist medicine, algorithms, methods, practice. We have to critique and trouble the academy and certainly graduate medical education because in many ways it's abusive and we have to stand with and increase indigenous and underserved populations who become physicians or work in medicine or in other allied health roles. We have to reduce barriers and prejudice in medical school and graduate medical education, which by the way, means actively challenging stereotypes that we hold about people. We have to center community and the patient and provider health. Um, if we've learned anything from the pandemic, um, I don't think we can ask providers to do much more unless we you know, center their health as part of healthcare overall. I mean, it's not okay if a family medicine physician has to see 25 or 35 patients in a day and then do their charts until midnight. Number 11 is stand with and promote health and healthcare for all and critique specialty or widget-based or unit-based visit medicine. So medicine that if medicine ever mimics or imitates a factory, it is not how it should be. We have to stand against the commodification of the poor and center equity. We have to criticize and stop epistemologic genocide. And directly address health disparities. Um, Lewis has taught me that if you don't know the patient's story, when often it is the patient's story, how it is that they could that they got sick or how they, got, how they might get better, that is central to healing. And if you don't even know that, or if you don't accept that, um, I don't believe that you can help people move toward health. We have to operationalize two eyed seeing and anti oppressive practice against systemic violence. And there is a lot of systemic violence. I mean, think um, if a primary family member uh, dies, you know, getting two days off of work or those sorts of things. Think about family medical leave acts. Think about all of that stuff. 15, we have to advocate for economic reform that centers health and reduces health care. Um, healthcare systems. Healthcare should not be 20% of our economy, while putting healthcare providers and recipients in debt, which reduces their freedom and liberty in terms of creative, creativity, movement, freedom, and health. We need research that's community-based and participatory and centers empowerment for others. And a lot of people have criticized, you know, um, participatory research because, you know, still it's usually only for, um, I mean, you know, research helps academics. The question is how can research help everyone um, uh, from a community perspective? We have to center love as a value with ethics, principles, values, and behaviors a la bell hooks. Bell hooks says, you know, a lot of people think about love as sort of this mushy idea. Love is not a mushy idea. Love is accountability. Love is about, um, you know, having metrics. Uh, uh, Love is about, um, you know, having a structure in which people can be more fully who they are. Um, We have to center philosophy that accommodates always multiple ways of knowing and knowledge. We have to eliminate health disparities and make social determinants of health uh, key to our health metrics. I mean, it shouldn't be ever okay because somebody grows up in a zip code that they're, you know, however many times more likely to die than somebody outside of the zip code. And we have to teach all of history, all of history that includes Indigenous and non-Western and Western ways of how um, art, science and making is central to our identities. So um, uh, and at some point, you know, I'm going to talk a lot more about decolonizing and scholarship specifically, but like opening up um, methodology um, fundamentally with the idea of capturing data that we wouldn't normally capture. Um, as part of a statistical mean.
2: So that represents what the ideas of uh, decolonizing medicine
1: are. I may have put Lewis to sleep.. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: I can't
0: hear you now. I muted myself in case I cleared my throat. These are profound topics. And I think the, that it's really incredible that we talk about this because we're all colonized. You know, one of the things that I learned growing up is that if you go to college and you leave the reservation you can never come back, people said. And that's not entirely true anymore. But granted, this was a long time ago. And, um, you know, there was something that people recognized about entering into the process of university education that profoundly, profoundly removed you from the experience of the tribe. And so those of us who did that were colonized. And we're still, as Patrick has beautifully discussed, we're all still trying to get back. We're all still trying to decolonize ourselves. and it it's a process, and it takes time and and consideration of many things. And I just really appreciate what Patrick had to say about his own process in, in this time. And, and I think it, it, it resonates for all of us, for all of us who have you know, left the indigenous communities to become hyper-educated and then struggle with where we fit among these worlds. So that, I mean, that's my take.
2: Thanks for
1: this opportunity.
0: Thank you. It was so good, Patrick. I was so appreciative of what you had to say. Um, And it was so powerful. I, I, I can't even think of any questions. But if you have anything more you want to say, please hold forth.
1: Uh, I'm just interested if um, anybody who, uh, you know, listens, if, um, if they have any ideas about decolonizing medicine, or if they are thinking about, um, you know, their own decolonization in some way, if they share that with you, I would be always um, interested in, in that, um, because that's part of building community around this, I think.
0: Mm. Indeed. And we invite Dialogue, both on the YouTube channel and on the podcast, and um, via email, via Facebook Messenger, via any platform with which we can relate. Though not Weibo from China, we're not on that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I mean, let's keep the dialogue going because I mean, I think fundamentally, one of the things that I've been learning or realizing this is much more than just indigenous people. This is the future of the planet. And this is survival because because plantation, settler, colonial capitalism will only kill us all. And maybe the super rich will get off the planet with all of their resources and make it to another planet. But I'm not seeing the probability of that being very high right now, (laughs) even though it plays out in movies. Like, Like we recently watched a movie Don't look up, which was an incredible metaphor for where we are today, which is we're being asked to not pay attention to the growing signs of the collapse of the human world. The cockroaches will always prevail. There's, (laughs) There's no destroying them. They can survive a nuclear blast and so can the the mushrooms, the fungi. But humans, not so much. So, um, you know, I, I think we're all in this boat together, wondering if humans will survive, wondering if the human beings will be eradicated from this planet. And wondering if the rich people will get off the planet before it collapses and find a new planet as in the movie don't look up so um who knows we'll see but i tend to think this is all we got and we got to take care of it and we got to figure this out and it's more than just Indigenous and non-Indigenous, it's, it's survival, that we all have to work together for survival and that Indigenous ideas are more conducive to survival than plantation settler capitalism. Mm. So that's my thought. So I think we're done for tonight for our podcast. It's, it's been a really fun, Patrick. It was great. And um, let's continue these dialogues. Thank you.
2: Thank you.